Well, we are at the end. This has been uh, an 11-month journey through the book of Acts. We're at the very end here. If you want to grab your Bibles, Acts 27 and 28. We're going to take this final chunk here at the end. If you're with us for the first time, you have a device, we go through the ESV version. So if you click on that, you'll be tracking with us. Acts 27. So what do we make of the book of Acts? That's the question I wanted to start out with this morning. We saw at the beginning of it, Jesus has died. He has risen. Uh, He has appeared to his disciples. He has appeared to hundreds of people. And then at the beginning of the book of Acts, he ascends to heaven and he prepares his disciples by filling them with the Holy Spirit in order to send them on mission to spread the gospel through a church planning movement, which oddly and in large part happens by two of his most controversial apostles, Peter and Paul. Two guys that if you just stood back long enough and you studied hard enough, you would say, no, not those guys. Can can we find some of, can we, what about Matthew? What about, you know, what about some of these other guys, Paul and Peter? Like those are your principal characters. And that's really who Jesus used along with uh, many others that came under Paul and Peter. And so chapter after chapter, the writer of Acts, Luke, his theme is that God's word increases, uh, that the kingdom of God continues to spread and that more people are added to the family of faith. And if we, if we sort of take a little bit of a kind of a cr- chronological journey through Acts, you, you see that, right? We, we hear that over and over again. You go to chapter two, verse 41, it says those who received his word were baptized and though they were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. So even from the very beginning as this movement started, um, people are being baptized. The word is being received. 3,000 people come to a saving faith. And then two, verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we get to chapter three, verse 10. It says they were filled with wonder and amazement. So with this multiplication movement and this increase of saved souls comes wonder and amazement over the work that God is doing. We get to chapter five, verse 42. It says every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So these were brothers and sisters that stayed on mission. We get to chapter six, verse seven. It said the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Chapter nine, verse 31 tells us, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit had multiplied. So this gospel message wasn't only for the Jewish people, but it was prophesied years ago, this would come to the Gentiles, it would come to us. And sure enough, through the work of Peter and Paul, primarily Paul, it comes to the Gentiles. We get to chapter 12, 24, so the word of God increased and multiplied. So you're beginning to get kind of this theme that keeps running through the book of Acts. We get to chapter 13, 48, and it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And then in chapter 16, five, it says the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So all the way through Acts, this is what we're hearing, multiplication and increase. The word of God continues to be preached. And these men were taking so many hits in the process. So I'm skipping over all the parts where they were beaten 
and they were accused and they were brought before local officials and national officials and they were condemned and they sometimes barely escaped before their lives were taken from them. So all of this preaching of the word, this increase of multiplication, it came at a cost. And the reason why it's so important to say that and to have that kind of understanding is because substance church is here because of that. Because the word of God increased and multiplied. We sit here today because of the work of men and women through the book of Acts that we've been learning about over the last 11 months that were faithful to do what God called them to do. And by the way, it's a work that continues today. It continues through a lot of toil, a lot of trouble, but also with much joy, with much wonder and much amazement. So I, wanna, I want us to finish our time in Acts with really the same encouragement that Paul himself received, we'll see here in chapter 27 and 28, uh, and then offered to those around them. And here is the encouragement. The encouragement is this, because the church belongs to Jesus, it means that we can take heart. And we can take heart through the storms and the shipwrecks and the standstills of life. And that's what we're gonna unpack this morning as we dive into chapter 27, verse one, where we're gonna read about how God took Paul and takes us through stormy seasons. Follow me with verse one. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Andromidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave them leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We came to Myra and Lycia, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Verse 13, now, when the south wind blew gently, uh, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the boats, the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. 
Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. 27, when the 14th night had come as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Let's stop right there. So what does it mean to be in a storm? Paul was in a literal storm, like the kind where you're in a boat and there's water and there's like rain coming down and lightning and all of that stuff. What does it mean to be in a storm for us? Well, it can be really a place that you find yourself that you're not really sure where your life is going. Everything is being tossed around. Maybe you lack vision. Maybe your path forward is obscured for whatever reason. It can happen with a bunch of different things. It can happen with job changes or school changes, maybe moving to a new town. Maybe it happens through a divorce. Maybe it happens through loss of friendship or even a, a change of routine or coming into a new church or just suffering through financial hardships. So we see Paul here in his journey, his day job, uh, we see him caught in a, a literal storm here called the Northeaster on his journey to Rome. He warns Julius, the centurion, who was uh, appointed to him to look over him, to watch him, to bring him to Rome. He, he warns Julius about the danger, but he's ignored. The storm was so heavy, it tells us, that either the, nor the, the sun or the stars were, weren't seen for days. Cargo is being tossed overboard. Nobody ate for weeks. There's a level here 
We want to understand this. We want to get, get the sense of this. There's a level of fear and fatigue on this ship that most of us have probably never experienced. And then Paul stands up and he says, well, first he says, I told you so. Uh, in verse 21, right? Thanks, Paul. Just making sure we know what you told us in the beginning before all of this unfolded. But then he tells them something much more important in verse 22 when he says, take heart because the God to whom I belong and worship said, don't be afraid. And we learn in verse 44 that all were brought safely to land. There was no loss of life. Everything Paul told them came to pass because of what God had told Paul. So there's just a couple things here that I want us to key in on. Um, and the first thing is this, is that God was sending Paul to Nero, the emperor. That was Paul's path. That was the journey Paul was on. Remember, he appealed to Caesar. You know, he's being held for crimes he didn't commit. And he says, I want to talk to the big guy. So he appealed to Nero and God is sending Paul to Nero, the emperor. And by the way, God could have chosen any route for Paul to arrive at Rome, couldn't he? Couldn't he have gotten him a little like straighter line to get to Rome to visit the emperor? And yet he sends him through a storm that nearly cost the lives of 276 people. What do we make of a God who sends us through storms to get us to the place that he is sending us? We can see that there's cruelty here, if that's how we want to see the work in the hand of God. We can also see how God keeps his promises through all the elements of life that are raging against us. Is a storm too much for God? Well, no, because God ordains the storms. And with storms comes the opportunity to see God at work. And not just God at work so that we can see how he manhandles or God handles the storm. We get to see the character of God at work in storms. We get to see a God not only of power, but a God of compassion and care. How might this help you in your storm today, whatever the storm is. Because a storm reminds you of some things. A storm reminds you that you're not in control, praise God, because just really great things happen when we're all in control of our destinies, right? But a storm reminds you that you're not in control and you never were and control is an illusion. I'm not talking about self-control. A storm also reminds you that you're not so self-sufficient after all. You're not feeling real cocky when you're in a boat being tossed by the Northeaster. And you don't have any way of preventing the storm, sheltering yourself from the storm, and just making it disappear, right? A storm reminds you that there is a fallen world that Christ entered into the storm of. Doesn't it remind us of that? Because it's so common for us to say in our stormy seasons, where are you, God? There hasn't been day or night for days in my life. 
I can't see you. I don't even know if you're there. When the storms of life, man, are just swirling around us and we wonder what good can come of any of this. And yet, what we're about to see is that God had purposed this ship to land on a particular shore where his power would be displayed to a people unfamiliar with the gospel. Nobody had that in mind in the midst of this storm. So God uses storms so that the gospel moves from the theoretical to the actual in your life. Because let me just say this, none of y'all need a theoretical gospel in your life. Then you all need to just have something that you, can, that you can put on the back of your car as a bumper sticker, that you can type onto Facebook to do a post, that you can wear on the front of your t-shirt, right? That's all theoretical. Where's the gospel and how does it bear down on your life when you're in the middle of something you can't see through? Is it a real gospel? Is the gospel real in your life? Is it actually living and breathing inside of you so that your response to those things is like Paul's response in a boat full of people that don't even worship God? Because Paul's response is much different, I think, than if we could have done a poll for the 276 people in that boat. There's two ways for us to respond in stormy situations. The first one is like this. Blah, 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 blah. But yeah, Ronnie, I know, God is sovereign. Did somebody do that to me the other day? The other way is to start like this. I know that God is sovereign. When we lead with the latter, it changes everything that comes after. That's what Paul always led with. Psalm 42, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to, but I'm going to because I have to read it. Psalm 42 gives us a sense of the emotion that stirs in us when we find ourselves in stormy, stormy places. 42, Psalm 42 says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Because my tears have been my food. Day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng, lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. I'm gonna finish here in verse five. It says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Notice what the psalmist is doing. He's speaking to himself. He's preaching something to himself in his storm that's true about God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. When we can't see 
God in the storm, when our souls are cast down, we hope in what we can't see, but what our heart knows to be true. So take heart, Substance Church, because you belong to a God who says, do not be afraid. So when the church belongs to Jesus, we can take heart through the storms. We can also take heart through the shipwrecks. I'm going to pick back up in verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors uh, and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who would swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Chapter 28, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Let's stop there. Because we see Paul being able to take heart and to encourage others to take heart through the storm. And now, even in this shipwreck, so how do, we, how do we think through what a shipwreck is in our life as compared to a storm? Well, a shipwreck might be where we end up in a place that we didn't think we'd be in. Has it ever happened to some of you? And how did I get here? How did this happen? You look around and you think, how am I going to pick up the pieces of all the loss and all the brokenness that just lies around me because of where I've ended up? And so we see here that God surprises Paul and the crew by not only saving them, but shoring them up at an island and providing, that provided them unusual kindness through this native people of Malta, which by the way, they would have never been able to experience without that shipwreck, that level of kindness that they received from 
this native people. You know, I think back to uh, the kindness that I've experienced, uh, that Melissa and I have experienced, only because there were shipwrecks uh, in our life. It was only because everything fell apart and we ended up on the ground with all the pieces lying in ruins around us that we were then able to experience a particular kind of unusual kindness that God used the shipwreck as the occasion for. I think about those moments. I also think about the moments that we've been able to show that kindness to other people who have experienced that kind of shipwreck in their life. Two miracles happen while Paul and the crew is shipwrecked on the island of Malta. The first one is he's completely unharmed by uh, a viper. Um, and then he heals the island chief named Publius as well as the rest of the islanders who had diseases. God provided them with safe harbor. And in safe harbor, God provided this people with healing through Paul. Remember what we said last week about Paul being on mission wherever his feet are planted? It just doesn't matter where Paul is. Paul didn't necessarily have an end game or an end goal. Paul took every situation that he was in that God had placed him in and he used it as the opportunity to extend the kingdom of God, to further the kingdom of God. He doesn't see his place only at a church in Ephesus or hanging around with the Greek philosophers at Mars Hill, but everywhere God sends him, his heart is focused. It's focused on furthering the kingdom of God. Maybe you look at your life and you think, oh my gosh, I have no idea how I got here. Do you ever think that? It's all been such a mess. I have this trail of loss and regret and just dead ends lying in ruins behind me. And yet, the God who sends you through the storm settles you on the shore. But it's not what I asked for. This is not the place I ever wanted to be in until we understand that the shipwrecked places are where God's grace finally becomes sufficient for us like it did with Paul. And that before the storm and the shipwreck, oh, it just hadn't been there like that. It just hadn't been there. Because it's better to be shipwrecked by God than sail on our own sea of self-sufficiency. Psalm 142, I'm going to go back to the Psalms. You can turn there or not. Oh Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. That's Psalm 141. Let me move up to Psalm 142. Sorry. It says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. It says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. 
Look to the right and see there is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Does that ever, can you resonate with that? No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. But the psalmist writes, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Even in the shipwrecks of our life, though no one might be caring for your soul, we are surrounded by the righteousness and the security and the fastness of Christ. So take heart because God has unusual kindness for you today and for me. So because the church belongs to Jesus, it means we can take heart through the storms and through the shipwrecks. We can also take heart through the standstills of life. So let's pick up with verse 11 to the end. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up and on the second day, we came to Putalai. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard from us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And thus concludes the word of God through the book of Acts. So it's through the storms, it's through the shipwrecks, it's also through the standstills of life. You know what those are? It's those moments when your life feels like it hits a wall and it comes to a halt. It's those seasons where everything is the same, where life is mundane. I know what I'm describing right now today, right? You're restless, you're discontent because you feel like your life is not making any progress. And so here we get to the end of Acts, which finds Paul under house arrest, connecting with local Jewish leaders who apparently have not heard from the elders of the church in Jerusalem about what's been going on with Paul. Of course, this tells us that communication in the church has not improved much in 2,000 years, right? Melissa found that super funny. But Paul does what Paul faithfully does. He preaches Jesus. Some are convinced, others are not, others disbelieve. So he lives for two years at his own expense, waiting for his time with Nero, preaching the gospel with boldness, it says, and without hindrance. A little further history because the book just kind of ends and we don't really know what happens to Paul. So some church history tells us that it's likely Paul faced the emperor Nero and was released and just happened to be released just a little time before Nero began what was his historically harsh persecution against Christians at this time. So Paul, because of that, was able to travel for a few more years on mission in places like Greece, Thessalonica, Asia Minor, maybe even as far as Spain, before he was again imprisoned by Nero and then executed. So that just gives you a small insight into what eventually happens to Paul. He is nearing the end of his life here. And we find that at the very end of the book of Acts, um, nothing really changes for Paul. He finds himself in a place where he's confined. He has some freedom, um, but he's confined, but he gets about the business of what God had always called him to do. And so sometimes for us, the hardest place is when there are no storms, there are no shipwrecks, but it's when life comes to a standstill, when it feels like nothing changes, when it feels like everything we accomplished seems to make almost zero difference to anybody. Do you ever feel that way? You feel unappreciated, you feel ignored, you feel like you're going through the motions. And let's be honest, COVID has brought us to the standstills of all standstills, hasn't it, right? There's been so much monotony since March and it might even still be March for all we know right now, right? The way things have been going. But when we're not able to produce, gosh, that's hard, isn't it? When everything is shut down and we're made to wait, we discover some things in that. We discover that our self-identity and our self-worth take a hit. 
because of how much that informs who we are. What we struggle with in the standstills of life is a confrontation with our lack of self-control. I'm sorry, our lack of control, which can lead to self-control. But this is what we know about God, is that God doesn't go missing in the mundane. Paul Tripp made this comment. He said, if God doesn't rule your mundane, then he doesn't rule you because that's where you live. And God is always living where you are living. God is always breathing in the places of life that you find it hard to breathe in. Sometimes we think it's the storms and the shipwrecks of life where God is trying to still us, but it may be in the stillness of life. It may be in everything that we're experiencing today where everything is finally quiet enough for us to hear his voice. God teaches us something in those moments. He instills in us the quietness of contentment in the standstills of life. And it's in that place, listen, where hope is given new soil to grow. If the book of Acts tells us one thing, it's that Jesus builds his church with fragile people who he faithfully holds fast and secures. Because there's gonna be storms. There's gonna be shipwrecks. There's going to be standstills. But you found a home in a structure that has Christ as the cornerstone of its foundation. You are anchored. So take heart. Jesus died. So take heart. Jesus has risen. So take heart. He ascended to heaven and is right now interceding for you at the right hand of God the Father. So take heart. Take heart because the heart of God who sent Jesus to save you will complete his work in you. Because why? The word of God is not bound. Because God is not hindered. Do you think storms, shipwrecks, and standstills can stop the church-building work of the Lord? Uh, it continues to spread without hindrance. The very last two words in the book of Acts. Though Paul was in chains, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.9, he said, the word of God is not bound. It's the same words he's using here. He's saying it's not hindered. Nothing can stop it. Not these chains, not the place I find myself in, not COVID, not my financial situation, not my relational situation, not what the government's up to. Does that hinder God? Well, if it does, it's just not the God that we should be following, so like no services next week. Like well, I'm out. Because God's word is not bound, we have assurance that his work in us and through us will continue unbounded. So take heart, COVID people. 
Take heart, mask-wearing people. That's not a trigger, maybe for the world, but not for us. Because the word of God in our hearts is unhindered. Take heart, because the heart of God is alive in you. And it's this heart that the world desperately needs. Do you hear me? Here's the invitation is that only those who have the heart of Christ can take heart in Christ. So let me plead with those of you who have not yet come before the Lord in faith and repentance and say, now is the day of salvation. Consider the heart of Jesus who was gentle and who was lowly and who died and was raised so that you might have forgiveness of sins and life eternal in him. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it would be our hope that that light of Christ would pierce through the darkness of your heart so that you may come to Christ in faith and repentance and understand that there would be something now in your life which is the very words of God unhindered and offering you hope and heart for the storms and the shipwrecks and the standstills that you will inevitably, if you haven't already faced. That would be our hope and our pleading and our heart for you because Jesus is going to build his church, Jesus is building his church. And our desire is, Paul's desire, is that this work would increase and that it would multiply and that more people would come to know the life-giving hope and joy that is found in Jesus. Do you see how it inspired one person to literally transform and change the world though he was in chains? A dude with no mobility, a dude with no internet, a dude with no social media, a dude with no ability other than like sending messages in a bottle to get his letters across town. How is that possible? And how does he do it with the kind of heart and the kind of hope and the kind of joy that he has all the way through this? How is that possible? It's because he knew he had his 401k waiting for him when he got out of the chains? No, it's because he had something that goes beyond what this world can give us that is still crumbling at its foundation. That's why the church that Jesus builds isn't going to fall because foundationally it's built on something that only Christ can provide. So have so much hope in that because what's surrounding you is not just a bunch of bricks. Well, it is a bunch of bricks, but that's not what's supporting us. It's the hope and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you have not gotten in on that, get the heck in on it with us, man. 
and we're weird and we're jacked up just like you. Let us walk with you as Christ walks with us because we want to feast with you one day, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this book that you've given the church, this book that Luke wrote for our encouragement, for our faith. God, we pray that these words, all these words over the last 11 months, it's been a crazy 11 months. But God, the gospel is living and breathing inside of us and in this church and in these walls. And God, we pray that it continues to move us and carry us and shape us because it's unbound. And it's the only thing in our lives that's unbound. So God, without hindrance, would you continue to do that work in us and through us? Would you encourage us in the storms, in the shipwrecks, in the standstills? Most of us are gonna find ourselves in one of those places right now. God, I pray that you would reach into the hearts of those who have just been hesitant, who have just been pulling back, who have not embraced your grace, your gentle and lowliness of heart. Lord, I pray that this might be the day of salvation for them, that they might come to you and say, I realize, God, that I can't do this. I was never meant to do this on my own, but I need your forgiveness. I need the righteousness of Christ in my life to change me, to save me. So God, would you so move in the hearts of these beloved brothers and sisters today. Lord, continue to walk with us as a church. Provide for us, Lord. Help us in these times when our tendency is to want to despair and to grumble and to complain, and I've done plenty of that myself. God, encourage us, embolden us in our faith. Lord, I pray that the church would not fail in these times. But that you would continue to strengthen us and hold us fast. Love us dearly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.